0: Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namihelps.org.
1: Hi, I'm Kay King. I'm a community educator for eight years for NAMI Minnesota. I'm a family member who was born to a mother who lived with mental illness, and my only sibling lives with bipolar disorder. I hope you can join us for Get to Know NAMI. It's a session where we talk about education, support and advocacy at NAMI Minnesota. At the session, you'll have a chance to learn about classes and programs that we provide. You'll have a chance to hear about our support groups and our helpline. You'll also have a chance to hear a little bit about the legislative policy, first-person language, and other advocacy programs that we offer. We have daytime and evening sessions available, one hour in length. Please go to our NAMI Minnesota website, namihelps.org, to see locations, times, and dates of our programs. Hope you'll join us.
2: Hi, my name is Brian Jost. I'll be your host. NAMI Minnesota is celebrating its 40th anniversary year of providing education, support, and advocacy. This episode is one of the 40 stories of hope related to our 40th anniversary. Today we have Lori Brown. She was one of the original board members, one of the founding board members for NAMI Minnesota and uh, first lobbyist. And we're going to hear Lori's journey with NAMI. So Lori, tell me how you got to NAMI.
1: Uh, I first got involved in NAMI about 1976 uh, when I was a student at McAllister College. And um, I have a brother who suffers from schizophrenia, uh, an older brother. And so he was about, at that time, six years into his journey Um Uh, as a person with schizophrenia. So I first got involved through the Schizophrenia Association of Minnesota, where I met some folks who had a table who were looking for people to write letters to support a state pilot project called SLIC, Sharing Life in the Community. And so I got involved with these folks. They were parents, primarily, but also some providers, as we call them, of um, uh, services for people who... Uh, suffered from mental illness, and um, those same folks, and through that lobbying uh, to get the slick bill passed, uh, NAMI was essentially formed.
2: And I've heard a little bit about your father, Bumps Brown. Um, and t- Tell me more about your father and his involvement with NAMI.
1: Well, my f- father, of course, was very involved, um, having had a son uh, who got sick when he was uh, 19 years old, and sort of followed my... Uh, lead, if you will, Uh, I was involved in NAMI and various uh, mental health volunteer activities until about 1991. And at that and including I was on the NAMI board, both the founding board and a board uh, much later uh, in the late 80s and 90s. And um, so when I got off, my father was very interested and started to get involved and eventually became the the chairman of the board of NAMI. He also did NAMI's books. Um, he was a very successful entrepreneur. He was retired. He loved numbers and somehow he managed to learn a bit about fund accounting. And so I mean
2: bookkeeping by bookkeeping, doing his book, doing Literally the books. did yeah. the bookkeeping. Got it.
1: And he did that actually until Sue Abderholden came on board. Uh, I think he had one of the, the meetings where she said, we'll take over that function. And, uh, and he was also very uh, happy at that point um, to have found Sue and for her to accept the position as executive director.
2: Can you tell me any favorite memories you have with NAMI or any moments that you're particularly proud of?
1: Well, I was very proud early on when the SLIC legislation passed. And um, I did my summer internship at Slick, so I actually worked with that program. Um, At that time, and it's probably even a little hard for people to imagine, uh, anything that we did, uh, passing legislation uh, in our lobbying efforts, new programs, uh, was met with um, much um, uh, doubt that putting money into the mental health system uh, would do any good. So we really reorganized around the closing of Hastings State Hospital because at the time, that closing was simply going to put the money, the legislature was simply going to put the money back in the general fund. So those dollars weren't following any of the clients uh, into the community. And so we, we rallied around that cause, saying that those dollars should follow the clients. Uh, most of the people who had been discharged from state hospitals were living in unlicensed facilities. Uh, there were only 15 licensed facilities in the entire state. And so most of the people were living with what I would call flop houses, uh, board and care facilities. Um, so we rallied around that cause, and that helped us pass the SLIC legislation, and that also helped us in 1979 pass Rule 14 legislation, both of which were considered highly experimental dollars for, uh, where our goal was to prove to the legislature that funding community mental health programs would actually help.
2: And that's what Rule 14 That was Rule 14
1: and SLIC. SLIC in 1976 and Rule 14 in 1979.
2: How have you viewed NAMI Minnesota change over the years as an organization?
1: Well, I I stayed involved with NAMI um, primarily primarily in working in Ramsey County for the Ramsey County uh, Mental Health Advisory Council. I was chair for many years. and But since 1991, when I opened my first business, uh, I haven't been that involved with NAMI. Last year, I attended their annual meeting and I couldn't believe the large gathering of people there. As they discussed their legislative uh, victories uh, for that session, I was dumbfounded. The number of issues that were being addressed, the success they had in getting funding. Um, I must say that for most of that annual meeting, I sat with a huge lump in my throat, just extremely proud, and but also uh, understanding the humble beginnings that we had and the attitudes that needed to be changed, the stigma that needed to be overcome, the legislative barriers And there were many, many, many to getting funding and where they are today, 40 years later, I I couldn't be more proud.
2: And you were the first staff member? uh, Uh, I was on the first
1: staff. Um, NAMI nineteen, must have been 1977, right? We're at 40 years. Uh, Marianne Hamilton was our first executive director, and she was a successful community organizer who also had a son who suffered from mental illness. Uh, Rose Krauser was our bookkeeper. And she also had a daughter who suffered from mental illness. Um, Pat Salmonson was our PR person and writer. Uh, She also had a son who suffered from mental illness. And I was the lobbyist. And I had a brother who suffered from mental illness. So the entire staff were family members. Uh, That was one of the really key things for us, was bringing family members and also clients uh, to the legislature and to the organization. Uh, We had some rules around how many, we called them providers, consumers and providers, how many providers could be on our board, and it could never be a majority. Um, But we did have very, very good relationships with providers. That's why we called ourselves a coalition. We felt that we needed to reach out and bring together uh, people from the psychiatric community, uh, people from the Department of Public Welfare, as it was called at the time, um, Tish Halloran at the Par- Department of Public Welfare was an amazing help to us in in every sense of the word. And I had a conversation with her actually about a week ago um, to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, just remembering what happened early on. And she said having us at her back really helped her to be an advocate within the Department of Public Welfare. Because at that time... Uh, the psychiatric model, or the model for treating people who had mental illness, was a medical model. Uh, it was a patient-doctor relationship, and Slick and um, the advocates really turned that around to an advocacy model, where uh, clients were held accountable, and clients were uh, supported by their families. Families were included in the treatment plans this was revolutionary. It it probably seems unbelievable that that would be so, but this was revolutionary at the time.
2: So that idea of changing from the medical model to the advocacy model, is that a change that you actually witnessed happen and and over how much time?
1: You know, it was a slow change. Um, I think that the in 1981, 82, so that we're about six years into it, the legislature finally started to come forward with Rule 36 funding. So I think at that point we saw the legislative change, and also the change uh, in the um, Department of uh, Human Services change, where they started to fund programs, thinking this could be the primary place for treatment would be in the in the community. But I think the change has occurred very slowly. And um, and I think it was enabled in large part by uh, consumers themselves coming forward. There was a program that was started in 1976 called Fed Up um, Families for the Emotionally Disturbed, United for Progress, and there was also a program that was started, uh, which was a Speakers Bureau, uh, where clients who actually experienced mental health problems and experienced the system. Came out and were speaking to other folks in the community. This is where the big change occurred, uh, because prior to this, um, I think that people who had and there's still a lot of confusion about schizophrenia. As you know, it's it's a word that's used uh, very liberally and and inappropriately. Not inappropriately, and, yeah. and um, <clears throat> but at that time, I think that people were just simply afraid of people with mental illness. So it, it having Uh, The speakers bureau actually come out and talk to communities. This was huge. This was really a big movement forward, and it enabled families to start talking more openly as well.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the original title of that program.
1: Let me let me just see if I have it because it would be good. Oh, Project Overcome. Oh, Project Overcome. Project Overcome. Yes, Marsha Lovejoy, Terry Ford. Okay. Uh, and Project Overcome, I mean, it was just absolutely amazing, and it was it was really great. There was a lot of um, learning that occurred within our organization, between family members and consumers, and so they were, um, Project Overcome, and, and I believe Terry and Marcia both served on our board of directors. They were constantly correcting family members, changing the language, and so really it. It occurred even within our own organization, the shift and the understanding uh, that just wasn't there before.
2: That's great. What are your hopes for the future of NAMI?
1: I just hope it keeps moving forward. I hope that they um, can develop a strong, strong advocacy. Uh, I'm concerned now uh, as we face potential Medicaid funding, cuts and um, I'm very concerned. You know, when NAMI started, uh, advocacy for the developmentally disabled uh, was very strong and their group homes and community facilities were well-funded. And I think that that has continued to be the case. Um, There was no shame or stigma, or maybe it was less uh, to be developmentally disabled. Uh, for family members or for those that were, uh, this wasn't true for the mentally ill. We still see uh, a large amount of stigma around mental illness, and so my hope is we're strong enough organization to overcome challenges in the in the future. And I believe that we are.
2: Mm-hmm. I think you're right. What has it meant for you personally to have been involved with the work of NAMI?
1: For me personally, I look back and I and I I'm amazed actually that uh, for a 22-year-old woman that I had the experience that I did, uh, being able to register as a lobbyist. It was my first training in sales. Uh, We were very well connected, the organization and the board, to key people in the legislature, including Senator uh, Jerry Hughes, who helped us, uh, Senator Rod Searle, who was then Speaker of the House. It was very bipartisan, uh, but I didn't know anything about uh, presenting. I had... Um, come to the organization, and I had studied in an internship through McAllister what the situation was, where the money was, how we were going to get the money over here, what the rules were, what was impeding money from moving through the system and following, actually following the clients in the system. And then they said, you know so much, Lori, why don't you register as a lobbyist? Well, I'll I'll literally tell you that early on, I used to stand outside the legislators' doors and they would open the door and push me into the office. And I would just start to say, you know, just start to talk. So what an experience that was. Um, I think that uh, throughout my life, I've been enrolling people uh, in causes that were way ahead of their time. That's that's become uh, the nature of everything that I've done in my career. So it really set me up to... Uh, see that you could be successful with new ideas uh, through educating, through legislation and through uh, new programs and uh, new technologies which can change the world So it was very very powerful experience for me
2: That's great. Is there anything on your mind that you want to share that I haven't asked?
1: I'd like to just you know call out a few of the names of the people who were very, very uh, important in the founding of NAMI. Uh, One was John Lackner. He was the former superintendent of St. Paul's Schools and his sister, Marcella Antone. And Marcella and John had a sister who was in, uh, at that time, I believe, in Noka State Hospital. Uh, She had had a lobotomy. And for what, considering what they had seen for the system to be so bold and so brave and so committed as a family member to not only start an organization, but to testify uh, to help those folks who had been in state hospitals many, many years. Uh, Pat Salmonson, also an amazing, amazing person who did so much for the organization. and one of the early founders, and, of course, the early staff that we had. But, you know, I'll be forever grateful. Also, Rose Krauser, um, whose daughter eventually committed suicide. Uh, We had a rash of suicides uh, that early uh, when we first organized, including uh, Rose Krauser's daughter. Rose was our office manager. Uh, My brother attempted suicide jumping off the Wabash Avenue Bridge. Um, He's still alive today. And is in a foster care program, which is uh, amazing in itself. And we had a volunteer who went to the legislature with me often to speak one-on-one and in hearings. And he also committed suicide. So it was it was a tough road. Everybody was suffering. Uh, there was a lot of suffering, and um, we turned that suffering into advocacy. And I wish that Rose and Marcy and John and some of those early founders could see what their efforts, where it's gone to, and what what's come from it today.
2: Do you want to mention any contact info if people want to contact you with any questions?
1: Oh, oh sure. People Feel free to contact me. My number is 651-270-2396. And um, I could give you my email
0: address, but go ahead and call.
2: Sounds good. Well, thanks for having this conversation today, Lori.
0: Sure. NAMI, Minnesota. Champions justice, dignity, and respect for all people affected by mental illnesses. Through education, support, and advocacy, we strive to eliminate the pervasive stigma of mental illnesses, affect positive changes in the mental health system, and increase the public and professional understanding of mental illnesses. NAMI Minnesota vigorously promotes the development of community mental health programs and services, improved access to services, and increased opportunities for recovery. Call us at 651-645-2948 or email namihelps at namimn.org. NAMI Minnesota's website is namihelps.org. Outside of Minnesota, visit nami.org to find your state NAMI organization.